On this New Year's Day, I want to keep the Christmas feast. Yeah, it's New Year's Day, but in another sense, it's still Christmas tide. It's just the second week of Christmas celebration, and there is still much feasting to be done. Christmas falling on a Sunday this year has sparked a lot of conversation within the church about the relationship between rest and worship, about the nature of the church, her gathering, and what should happen when she gathers. I uh, have no interest, at least at this juncture, in polemical debates. That means sub-preaching or sub-tweeting or sort of like talking at other churches to your own church. I have no interest in doing that. I am profoundly interested in imagining and reimagining the way we think about the relationship between rest and worship. What if our work in worship is itself a sort of rest? What if these special times of celebration, Christmas tide, uh, even Lent, Easter, etc., are, are meant to remind us who God is, who we are, and how we live in light of those things? Now, one might notice that some of these discussions about canceling services, or perhaps you didn't notice, and I'm just telling you, they don't happen in older traditions. And perhaps that is in part because of the way such traditions order time. The whole year is not ordered around a school system, a sports season, or vacations, all of which are very good things, by the way. But the whole year, ideally at least, is ordered by the life of Christ. The Christ story shapes the calendar, at least in theory. If we followed it to a T, the world would be full of wonderful Christians and doing wonderful Christian things. But at least in theory, this would give us a radically God-word, God-directed orientation to the world. Christ orders the calendar. For example, Advent, the beginning of the year, throws us into the waiting and longing of a people for our Redeemer. Christmas Day, the celebration of that Redeemer's coming, begins a whole 12 days of feasting and worship and rejoicing in Christmas tide. On Christmas Day, the feast is just beginning. But for so many of us in the cultural Christianity of our day, it's a, it's a new year. The feast is over. We're tapped out. It's back to the grind. On to a new year and back to work. But friends, what if the night is still young and the feast is still long? I think God has even more joy for us. I think God has even more rest for us. Not in a hypothetical world, not in a perfect little Christian world where everything functions Christianly, but in this world, in the world as it is. Let's open the word of God together that we may keep on worshiping, that we may keep the feast of Christmas here on what is, I'll be honest, one of my favorite weeks of the year. The week after Christmas is always the, the least attended service, uh, so it's good to see some people here. I was once again prepared to preach with, to the angels in the, uh, in the, in the balcony. But it's, it's one of my favorite weeks because you just get a lot of freedom. You know, there's no expectations. Not, uh, everyone's expectations come in low. And, uh, you know, it's always good to have low expectations. You always exceed them. And so I, I particularly enjoy the week after Christmas because uh, I get to come up and just preach uh, with maybe a little more freedom. 
So this morning, on this week after Christmas, that happens to be a New Year's Day because of the way our calendars work this year, let us go to Leviticus chapter 23. The title of this sermon is On Worship and Rest. On Worship and Rest. Some preliminary comments about why in the world we're looking at Leviticus this morning. If we just jump right into it, I don't think we'll get anywhere, but some comments will help us understand where we're going. Why did Christians start celebrating events in Christ's life? Like, why did they start to celebrate his birth, even his baptism, uh, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension? Not only that, but why did Christians begin to gather every Sunday morning? Was it just arbitrarily picking a day? We know we need to get together. Let's pick a day and figure out when to do it. And why did they begin to treat those Sundays differently than the other days that they had on their calendar? Why have a Lord's Day recurring every single week? Why repeat the same festivals over and over and over again throughout our lifetimes? Were Christians just making stuff up out of thin air? Were they borrowing, as some like to argue, from other cultures around them? Not necessarily. More fundamentally than that, I think this. They knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles. And they knew what their Bibles said about feasting, about times of celebration, about special times of worship and its relationship to rest. In Leviticus 23, God is establishing for his people rhythms of feasting or celebrating, I'll use those two terms interchangeably, and resting. He tells them what he wants from them, when exactly he wants them to do it, and how exactly he wants them to fulfill these commands. Let's not get bogged down in the details, so let's go 30,000 foot for just a moment. Every single week, you'll rest on the seventh day. Every spring, you'll celebrate Passover, first fruits, and weeks. Every fall, you'll celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. That's a lot of celebration. You've got something going on every week. In the fall, you've got some major celebrations, and in the spring, you've got some major celebrations. All these celebrations are packed with all sorts of dense theological meaning, and they all point to Jesus, by the way, which itself would be a very fun sermon. But I think when early Christians read Leviticus 23, I think they see some principles that we can see this morning. I think it would be unthinkable for them to stop celebrating, to stop feasting, or to feast less, celebrate less, rest less, now that Christ has come. Perhaps they saw three reasons to keep worshiping, to keep appointed times of celebration from the text of Leviticus 23, three reasons that we'll see this morning. First, we worship to rest. We worship to rest. Second, we worship to remember. We worship to remember. And third, we worship to proclaim. We worship to proclaim. Let's just pick up in chapter 23, verse 37, and I'll just read uh, to verse 44. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation. For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. 
On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over and over again, if you were to read through this whole chapter, you would see this idea of a solemn rest. You would see repeatedly this command, do not do any ordinary work. These are holy convocations. That just means these are set apart gatherings. Each of these feasts are coupled with some command to rest. And the Sabbath is like the building block of the whole calendar. It's the foundation of the system. As God orders his people's lives, this is important, friends, especially in our day. As God orders his people's lives, he builds around rest. Rest doesn't get squeezed in when it can. It's foundational to our very approach to life. The Sabbath is like the building block of all that will follow because we are not productivity machines. We are not cogs in a system. We're worshipers. Our productivity, our work, it flows from our worship, which is tied inherently to our rest. Because we worship when we rest by remembering that we are not the creator. We have to stop. We have to rest. We have to sleep. We're reading a book to Roe right now called Does God Sleep? Right? Helping us understand, like, God is not like us. He is the creator. We are the creature. Resting is itself a proclamation that we are not God. As God is building his calendar for his people in the Old Testament, he orders time for them. Not, and, he's, and he's scheduling just chunks of rest. Imagine sort of on an iPhone calendar, um, sort of repeat event every Sunday, right? Repeat event every week. A whole day that's just directed towards God and worship and rest. A whole day. And repeat that event every single week. Then we'll take big chunks of time in the spring and we'll take big chunks of time in the fall and they'll do the same thing. We'll give them different activities and different things they must do to direct their hearts and direct their minds to God. And rest. But how will they rest? This is so important. They'll feast. They'll celebrate. They'll worship. Rest is not just mindless disengagement. Check out that language up in verse 3. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. You're resting toward something, even more simply, you're resting towards someone. In the same way you work towards a goal, you, you rest towards God. 
In these feasts, God is teaching his people how to rest. He is helping his people see that, that their fulfillment, their rest, is connected to his worship. Friends, rest, renewal, fulfillment, rejuvenation, the stuff you need to keep going, whatever you want to say, like, it comes from God. I'm still learning this, but I learned this when I, needed to, when I wanted to quit this job early on. If church life, I think, and I could be wrong here, so this is just, you know, it's the week after Christmas. No one's here. We can just talk together. If church life causes extreme burnout on a lot of people, then we, we have to reevaluate church life. <laughs> if the things that we do on Sunday mornings aren't sustainable, then, then we have to ask, why do we do them? Or how do we do them? Brothers and sisters, I, the New Testament church... It, is not a, a thing we necessarily need to rest from. It's, it's actually a people we find rest in. This doesn't mean we don't miss a single service. It doesn't mean that, you know, churches who approach these things differently are in some heinous sin. But it is a warning and reminder not to make church something it was never meant to be. I just think if, if big productions are exhausting, then why not just someone open a book and just sing and everyone sing with them? If we can't do church without scores of volunteers, why, why don't we reimagine what church might look like more simply without scores of volunteers all the time? I'm not saying church doesn't take work. I'm not saying it shouldn't be sacrificed. I'm just saying that in that work, in that sacrifice, there is a sort of rejuvenation. There is a sort of rest we find in the gathering of God's people oh, I think there's much meat on the bone if we were to have a conversation about the relationship between rest and worship. And there's much that the church today, our church, can, can learn. Feasting together, worshiping God together, teaches us how to rest. It invites us into his rest. I pray we learn this. We feast to rest, and second, we feast to remember. Look with me in verse 42. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. Speaking about the festival of booths here. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is pretty cool. God says to his people, you will do this forever and ever throughout all generations. Why? Because y'all gonna forget. So God has created their calendar. He's put in blocks for resting. Then imagine the blocks he's put in for resting. He goes in and titles those blocks and puts a description in those blocks. Go live in tent. That's the title of our event that's recurring in the fall. Why? To remember that your ancestors lived in a tent when I delivered them. Put in another event block, put the title of the event, Passover, <laughs> go eat lamb, to remember that your ancestors killed a lamb, put its blood over the doors, ate it, and escaped slavery. Keep these feasts to remember who I am, what I've done, and why it matters. Keep these feasts because the stuff of your daily lives can crowd out the things that you cannot forget. Because if you forget what I've done, you'll forget who I am. God says, 
If you forget who I am, you forget who you are. We've seen this in the judges for the last several months. If you forget who you are, then you are no different than the world around you. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy to forget who we are, that we are the people of God in the world. We are ambassadors of reconciliation through whom God is making his appeal to the nations. Don't forget to remember, to to remember the things you could never forget. We know this intuitively. We do this. We Why do we remember our wedding day, for example? I think maybe it's because we spend a lot of time being married. But we need some time to like step aside from that and just think like, it's good that we're married. (laughs) We think about our wedding day because we want to take it some time to remember not just like, okay, this is this person, they're always with me, but like I've made a covenant vow with this person and with God and like I get to love this person and it takes some time to say, I remember when we made that vow. I remember Mason's little sermon. No one says that. I remember all these things that happened that day, our families, the receptions, the rehearsals. The all. I remember all. And you look back and you remember. And, and in that remembering, it's, it's sort of doing something for your relationship. We make a day, a wonderful day, not just to be married, but to celebrate marriage. Why do we remember our birthday? Well, we spend a lot of time being married if you're married, but if you were born, you spend a heck of a lot of time being alive. But it's pretty nice to take a day and let other people tell us they're happy that we're alive. Like January 5th, for instance, my birthday, which is coming right up. You know, hey, I'm, I'm glad January 5th, 1993 happened. Yeah, glad you're here. Like, we remember our birthday because it's good to reflect on the fact that we're alive. <laughs> Why do, what do we remember here in the second week of Christmas? What might we be tempted to forget that we cannot forget? Oh my goodness, the incarnation. The mystery of all mysteries, beauty of all beauties. You might not be a Christmas person, but surely if you're a Christian, you're an incarnation person, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the words of St. Augustine, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way get tired on his journey, that truth might be accused of falsehood, that teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. We reflect on the mission of Christ that is coming to pass in his incarnation. That the Son of God would come to seek and save the lost. That in his humanity and in his divinity, he would die in our place, taking the punishment of our sin on himself, that we might know him. We feast to remember. We feast every Christmas to remember that our God has come to save us. He has wrapped himself in flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Third and finally, we feast to proclaim. Remember and proclaim, God says, that I am the Lord, your God. Why do you gather with all God's people and then why do you observe these things in your home? You're remembering and proclaiming who God is. This has like a a pedagogical function. It just means like a, a teaching tool. 
If we will come to God at all, we must come as a child. So let's ask questions like Jewish children. Why do we have to eat these bitter herbs every year? I hate these things. These are just really disgusting. Because, daughter, son, our ancestors tasted the bitterness of slavery. And we taste these bitter herbs to remember their chains. We just got this great big harvest, mom, dad, that we so desperately need for ourselves. Why are we giving a tenth of it to the temple in this act of worship? Because, my child, it's all God's. And he's not low on resources. He's got more coming to us. Why do we leave some grain out on the field, in the threshing room floor, even? Well, my child, it's for the sojourner, the poor, the ones who need it. Because God has taught us to love the poor, the immigrant, and the sojourner. Why are we sleeping in this tent, Mom? Because, son, daughter, God led his people through the wilderness and they stayed in tents. Why is that priest sacrificing that animal? Because, my child, it's an offering to God for our sin. For we have sinned against a holy God, and this is how he commands us, seek forgiveness. We feast to rest, we feast to remember, and we feast to proclaim, to teach, to share with our children, to share with our spiritual children, to share with the watching world the story of God. When you see others keeping this feast, tell them why you do it. When others see you keeping this feast, tell them why you do it. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we have a season of celebration every year? Share the story of God. Feast to evangelize. Like as you sit down with your Christmas dinner and you share your posts, like tell people that you do all of this because God is good. That God keeps his promises that in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord himself has paid the penalty for our sins. We feast and celebrate to tell the world that life is not meaningless. We feast to tell the world that the Son of God who has died has risen from the dead. We feast to tell the world that he is reigning in heaven. We feast to tell the world that evil has an expiration date. We feast to tell the world that Jesus is good, that he loves them, and that he is the Lord, their God. We feast for the life of the world. One of the prevailing sentiments, I think, across the church in all her iterations is that we are deficient at times in our joy. In the world in which we live, I read one author say named Ashley Wallace in A Thrill of Hope, celebrating Advent at home. In the world in which we live, we are given no time to prepare for the birth of our Lord and then no time to celebrate it once we get there. In the world in which we live, we are given virtually no time to prepare for the birth of our Lord and Savior and then really no time to celebrate that fact, once we get to the time of preparation that we just felt rushed through. You know, I preached a similar sermon to this one last year on the second week of Christmas Tide, and I am going to preach a very similar sermon to this again next year. 
with some different points, different introductions, different conclusions. Because one thing I've learned from um, coaching, I've relearned it from coaching, basketball. We won our last game, by the way, just a side point. But um, And one thing I've learned from being a pastor is people, like, they hear what you say. You know, Holly reprimanded me for, or that's a kind of dry way to say it. I, I don't know, correct, rebuked in love, I don't know. But... Um, corrected me when I, I, you know, said, you know, no one listens to me. She's like, stop saying that. People listen to you and it hurts their feelings when you say that. Okay. (laughs) So I've learned that, like, people listen to to me or, you know, I would listen to any other speaker up on a stage as much as, you know, we're all listening. But people really remember not just what you say or what you preach once, but people remember what you emphasize. Like, what do you say a lot what do you say over and over again? Like, what are the overarching themes? In Eugene Peterson's biography, uh, his son was, this is a really pointed point, you know. His son was asking him about a particular pre- a preacher, and he said, he's pretty good, but he hasn't found his sermon yet. And what he meant was, he hasn't, like, found his voice as a preacher, and he hasn't developed these overarching sort of theological themes that he's passionate about and he's returning to that God's called him to proclaim. And so uh, this is one of those sermons, I think, that we need to preach a lot. We can sing same songs again, and I think, I think there's some value in hearing some similar ideas because we need to be better celebrators. We need to think about worship and rest and work a lot more together. And I think the last several months has revealed that to be a trend throughout the church. I think we need to be better celebrators. I think we need even more joy. I think we need to reflect on the ways in which rest and worship belong together. I think we need to reflect on the role the church plays as the locus of celebration, as the center, the gathering point where we come together and our work is worship and our worship leads us to divine rest in the presence of our God. So yeah, I preached a sermon that was quite similar to this one last year on the second week of Christmas tide. And I'll probably do it again next year because we really need to learn to feast together. After all, Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding celebration. And to a celebration, we travel to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to the great banquet in the kingdom of heaven. Worship team, I am finished. In that day, we will feast and rest. And in our working, we will not grow weary. For we will be with God forever and he will be ever with us. I quoted this last week, but it just fits again. The day is coming when winter will give way to Christmas. It is winter in Narnia, said Mr. Tumnus, and has been for ever so long Always winter, but never Christmas. The extended celebration of Christmas points to the day when the celebration will not end. Christmas tide tells us glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. The second week of Christmas tide is a reminder that we are headed to a celebration that will never end. 
The day is coming when it will always be Christmas, where Christ will reign in perfect justice and righteousness and peace, where in our working we will not grow weary. Our lives will be meaningful and not tainted by sin. We feast for our joy. We feast for our rest. We feast for the life of the world. And we feast for the glory of God. Christmas tide, of course, will end. The church will enter into a new season of worship with new emphases and new focuses. But throughout all of those, there is a standard feast that happens over and over and over. It's like that Sabbath rest. On top of this, God says, you'll do this. Christ himself instituted a feast that we observe as often as we gather. And we observe this feast to rest in his work, to remember what he has done, and to proclaim his gospel, to proclaim his love and grace. Of course, this feast is the Eucharist. His body and his blood for us, means of grace that fill us for the journey ahead. Brothers and sisters, I I long for a day where it's unimaginable that we would not gather around this table to be filled spiritually for all the struggles and toils and wins and losses and good things and bad things that lie ahead. So as we think this morning about the intersection of these ideas of of rest and worship and even work a little bit, we, we begin our week every week right here at this table, professing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified and died and buried and rose again for us, saying we need his body and his blood. We need him to fill us. And spiritually, he is with us as we do this. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then I'm gonna invite you to come. Get the the bread, the cup, again, in the circle in the middle is gluten-free bread. That's important for two reasons. If you need that, it's there. And if you put something back, which you shouldn't do anyways, don't put it back on the circle plate. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to pray for us. I'll invite you to come to keep this feast, to observe the Lord's Supper, that we might rest together to remember and proclaim the glory of our God, and that we might be filled with joy to leave here and have the happiest of New Year days. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to learn. I have so much to learn. Uh, Our church has so much to learn. We have so much to learn about who you are and, and who you've called us to be as your church in the world. So here on this New Year's Day, on this second week of Christmas, We ask you to teach us about worship. We ask you to teach us about celebration. We ask you to teach us about rest. 
We ask you to help us imagine, Lord, through the illumination of your spirit and the truth of your word, ways of being and doing church that lead us not to the point of exhaustion necessarily, but but lead us into your ever-fulfilling life. That we would be cognizant of like, as we're pouring ourselves out in this work of worship, that you are filling us up, but that you would help us, Lord, not slip into cultural modes that are unsustainable, but that we might be sort of bound to you, that we might do this in your power and, and through your spirit, and that you might do a supernatural work in us and through us through these ordinary things of praying, of singing, of preaching, of hearing, of eating, of standing and sitting and listening and drinking and all these things that we do on Sunday mornings. So take these ordinary things, Father, and do extraordinary work in us and through us.